one and we're back i put my hand up because it usually does a screenshot um we'll see if that gets clipped or not but we don't care because we do what we do and that's how we do so now we're live on the book we're live on the tube we're live everywhere you can get your media or you get your podcast called the Jonathan Cogan show. And today we're talking about some a little different because that's what we do here on pod. We're talking about science and ideology. Taking a little bit of a, not a U-turn, but we're going to, we're going to do something here. I want to start off with a story. So let me start off with a story. It is a summer day in 1582. A young student by the name of Galileo Galilei sits in a cathedral of Pisa. Before him stands a priest reciting scripture. A chandelier attached to the vaulted ceiling by a thin chain hangs over the priest's head. The warm summer breeze blows in through the door, setting the chandelier in motion. Sometimes the breeze swings the lamp far from its resting place above the altar. Other times it moves only a little bit. The priest's voice disappears in the background. Galileo's eyes follow the lamp back and forth, back and forth. He checks his pulse ba-dum, ba-dum, and counts the number of heartbeats. Regardless of how far it swings, the pendulum always takes the same amount of time to return to its starting point. The events in the Cathedral of Pisa later took on mythical proportions, embodying the cultural and social upheaval that characterized the centuries that followed. Excuse me, sorry. Religious discourse, with its system of dogmas derived from ancient texts, lost its authority. Instead of something that had to be revealed to man by God, knowledge became something man could come to on his own. All he had to do was observe phenomena with his eyes and think logically. Religious discourse had turned man's gaze inward for thousands of years, revolving around conception of man as a sinner who lies and deceives and loses himself in worldly temptations, who must ready himself for death because it will catch up with him eventually. If man suffered in this world, the creation of God, it was because he failed to measure up as a moral and ethical being because he was living in sin. It was not the world that had to be questioned, but man himself. That all changed with the emergence of science. Fauci. No, no, science. Just kidding. Even though Fauci says he is science. Man believed that with the power of reason, he could adjust the world while he himself could remain unchanged. He gathered his courage and took charge of his destiny. He would use his own intellectual power to understand the world and to shape a new rational society. For too long, he had been forced to remain silent in the name of God no one had ever seen. For too long, society had been burdened by dogmas that lacked any rational foundation. The time had come to dispel the darkness with the light of reason. Enlightenment is man's release from his self-incurred tutelage. Tutelage is a man's inability to make use of his understanding without direction from another. Dare to think. Have the courage to use your own reason is therefore the motto of enlightenment. As stated in 1784 by the great German enlightenment philosopher Emil Kant. Galileo dared to think. After mass, he rushed to his dorm room and began experimenting with pendulums. He altered the weight of the swinging object, the force with which the object was put into motion, the length of the chain by which the object was suspended. Only a few months later, he was able to formulate the basic law governing pendulum motion. Only the length of the chain, the pendulum arm, has an impact on the duration of motion. Other brilliant thinkers, such as Nicholas Copernicus, Copernicus and Isaac Newton also pulled the dogmatic wool from their eyes to register the world around them with an open mind. They demonstrated that certain aspects of reality could be captured in mathematical and mechanistic formulas with incredible accuracy and precision. 
it seemed incontrovertible. The book of the universe is written by the language of mathematics. These thinkers not only reached great intellectual achievements, they also assumed a unique humanistic and ethical stance with regard to the world and its material objects. They had the courage to set aside the prejudices and dogmas of the time. They admitted their ignorance and were curious and open to what phenomena have to say for themselves. This not knowing gave birth to a new knowledge, a new knowledge for which they would do anything for which they were willing to give up their freedom, sometimes even their lives. This newborn science, this budding knowledge, showed all the characteristics of what the French philosopher Michel Foucault defines as truth-telling. Truth-telling is a way of speaking that breaks through an established, if implicit, social, con social consensus. Whoever speaks the truth breaks open the solidified story in which the group seeks refuge, ease, and security. This makes speaking the truth a dangerous endeavor, and that's why this podcast is highly risky but we still do it because we do it for you. It strikes fear in the group and results in anger and aggression. Truth-telling is dangerous, yet it is also necessary. No matter how fruitful a social consensus may be at a certain time, if it is not dismantled in time and renewed, it will petrify and eventually have a suffocating impact on society. In such times, the truth will emerge as a sincere voice that breaks through the dull refrain of an established story and lends a new sound to old and angels' words. As Max Jacobs says, truth is always new. Science can, in essence, be defined as open-mindedness. The original practice of science, that which formed the basis of the Enlightenment, briefly suspended prejudice about the things being observed. It was open to the greatest possibility, diversity of ideas and thoughts, assumptions, and hypotheses. It cultivated doubt and considered uncertainty a virtue. It let the facts speak for themselves and decide for themselves what kind of thought or theory they preferred to unite with. In this way, facts were reborn into words as fresh budding truths. It was not only the facts that had the liberty to assert themselves. I may disagree with what you say, but I will defend to the death your right to say it, Voltaire declared, or rather his biographer, Evelyn Patrice Hall declared. Science also liberated man from his self-incurred immaturity. It broke through rule by a religious dogma that, in the public sphere, had largely decayed into coercion and oppression, pretense and hypocrisy, deceit and lies. This open-mindedness bore abundant fruit. The scientific method was used to understand and predict the movement of celestial bodies to describe pendulums and calculate gravitational acceleration, and also to study the behavior of animals, to understand how the mind works, to map the structure of languages, to compare cultures with one another. It could be flexibly adapted to every domain of inquiry, every object of research, and it brought forth sublime discoveries in every field. Shapes and colors were delineated sharper than ever in science's light. Sounds sounded clearer than ears had ever heard. This openness of mind, this faithful pursuit of reason at any cost eventually yielded through an incessant endeavor over several centuries the most sublime insights surprising insights too. The great physicists of the first half of the 20th century proved in the most rigorous way that the core of matter cannot be separated from the observing subject. They demonstrated that the observation of a material object changes the object itself. Looking at something changes it. Moreover, they relinquished the illusion that man could ever attain certainty. With his uncertainty principle, Warner Heisenberg demonstrated that it is impossible 
to unambiguously determine even purely material facts, such as the location in time and space of material particles. The great minds who followed reason and facts most rigorously came to the conclusion that, ultimately, the essence of things is beyond logic and cannot be grasped. Niels Bohr concluded that only poetry can describe the absurd behavior of elementary particles. When it comes to atoms, language can only be used as poetry. Also, the very idea of predictability in the material world fanatically proclaimed by French scientist Pierre-Simon Laplace in, in the 80, 18th century was invalidated by the American mathematician and meteorologist Edward Lorenz in the 20th century. Even if you're able to capture a complex dynamic phenomenon, which includes most natural phenomena, in mathematical formula, you still, even with formulas in hand, wouldn't be able to predict their behavior a second in advance. And finally, the image of the universe is a dead and non-directional, non-teleological, mechanical, mechanistic process also proves scientifically untenable. Chaos theory showed in a truly revolutionary way that matter is constantly organizing itself in ways that cannot, that cannot possibly be explained in mechanistic terms. The universe is endowed with direction and volition. Newton had already stated as much in the 17th century. The laws of mechanics, <laughs> mechanics, mechanics, mechanics apply to only a very limited part of reality. As science progressed, this only became clear, at least for those who had eyes to see it. In the 20th century, the great mathematician, René Tom, put it in this way. That portion of reality, which can be well described by laws which permit calculations, is extremely limited. He continued, even more importantly, quote, all major theoretical advances, in my opinion, have arisen from the capacity of their inventors to get into the skin of things, to be able to empathize with all entities in, of the external world. It is this kind of identification that transforms an objective phenomenon into a concrete thought experiment. This sheds surprising light on the nature of science. Most are of the opinion that science consists of making dry, logical connections between, quote, objectively observable facts. However, science is, in fact, characterized by empathy, a resonant affinity between the observer and the phenomenon under investigation. As such, science stumbles upon an unknowable and mysterious essence that escapes logical explanation and which can be described only in the language of poetry and metaphor. Encounters with that essence often result in what we might describe as the seminal religious experience, religious experience that proceeds and is unattained by religious institutions or dogma. Max Planck testified to that experience in perhaps the most direct and vulnerable way. Science eventually arrives where religion once started in a personal contact with the unnameable. Based on this experience, the physicists of the 20th century reappraised the great religious and mystical writings, such as the Upanishads. The content and structure of those texts, the imagery and the symbolism, offer a better grip on reality than any logical, rational discourse. Science freed itself from all the dogmas of religious discourse, only to rediscover, at the end of a long journey, the mystical and religious texts and re-endow them with their replendent original status, sim symbolic metaphorical texts for that which is eternally hidden from the human mind. As I'll discuss later, the faithful pursuit of reason 
attain the highest and most sublime achievement, mapping its own boundaries. The human mind had accepted its own limitation and once more relocated the ultimate knowledge beyond the outside itself. The ultimate achievement of science is that it finally surrenders, that it comes to the realization that it cannot be the guiding principle for man. It is not human reason that is at the heart of the matter, but man as an individual who makes ethical and moral choices, man in relation to fellow man, man in relation to the unnameable, which at the heart of things speaks to him. However, from the beginning, the tree of science also sprouted a branch in another direction, the exact opposite direction of that original scientific practice. Based on the great achievements of science, some people tipped from open-mindedness to belief. For them, science became ideology. It was mainly the mechanistic, materialistic branch, the so-called hard sciences that most enraptured us. Simple in its principles, the laws of mechanics, specifically its object, the tangible, visible world, and awe-inspiring in its practical applicability, from the steam engine to the television and the atomic bomb to the internet. This science has everything to seduce human beings. With this branch of science, man conquers space. It enables us to see and hear what is happening on the other side of the planet and visualize brain activity. It gives us the ability to move faster than sound and to perform microsurgical procedures. In the past, people waited in vain for God to perform miracles, but this science made them actually happen. Man had left the stage of believing and could now rely successfully on what he knew, at least so he believed. From the Enlightenment forward, mechanistic thinking provided the grand narrative in Western civilization. According to that story, it begins with a big bang that sets an expanding universe in motion, generating a series of phenomena of growing complexity. Hydrogen is first formed, then helium, and then all other elements through alternating processes of fusion and explosion. The elements clump together and form stars and planets, and one of them, the Earth, contains water. This water allows for the formation of amino acids, often regarded as the first form of life. From here, guided by natural selection, simple forms of life gradually give way to more complex forms until, at long last, man emerges, the provisional endpoint of evolution. In this way, the scientific discourse spun, us, spun its own creation myth. From this perspective, the entirety of human subjectivity became an insignificant byproduct of mechanistic processes. Man may not realize it, but his humanity does not really matter. It is nothing essential. His whole existence, his longing and his lust, his romantic lamentations and his most superficial needs, his joy and his sorrow, his doubt and his choices, his anger and unreasonableness, his pleasure and his suffering, his deepest aversion and his most lofty aesthetic appreciations. In short, the entire drama of his existence can ultimately be reduced to elementary particles that interact according to the laws of mechanics. This is the credo of the mechanistic materialism. Whoever doubts this creed voluntarily declares himself foolish or insane. One is still allowed to doubt, but only about the right things. In this way, the tree of science sprouted a branch that grew in the opposite direction from the original shoots. At its birth, science was synonymous with open-mindedness, with a way of thinking that banished dogmas and questioned beliefs. As it evolved, however, it also turned itself into ideology, belief, and prejudice. 
Science thus underwent a transformation as all ideologies do. At first, it was a discourse by which a minority defied a majority. Then it became the discourse of the majority itself. In the course of this transformation, scientific discourse aligned itself with objectives that were opposed to the original ones. It enabled manipulation of the masses, allowed people to build a career, publish or perish, promote products, research shows our soap washes the whitest, spread deception, I only believe the statistics I faked myself, Winston Churchill, and belittle, belittle and stigmatize others. Whoever believes in alternative medicine is an irrational fool. Indeed, even to justify segregation and exclusion, no access to public spaces unless you bear the sign, a mask, a vaccine passport of the scientific ideology. In short, the scientific discourse, like any dominant discourse, has become the privileged instrument of opportunism, lies, deception, manipulation, and power. Stick with me. To the extent that the scientific discourse became an ideology, it lost its virtue of truth-telling. Nothing illustrates this better than the so-called replication crisis that erupted in academia in 2005. This crisis emerged when a number of serious cases of scientific fraud came to light. Scientific scans and other imaging were proven to have been manipulated. Archaeological artifacts were found to be counterfeit. Embryo clones had been forged. Some researchers claimed to have successfully transplanted skin from mice whilst they had simply dyed the skin of the test animals without performing any surgical procedure. Other researchers had manufactured missing links from pieces of skulls of humans and monkeys. And yes, it appeared that some even completely made up their research. This kind of full-fledged fraud was relatively rare. However, however, and not actually the biggest problem. The biggest problem was with less dramatic instances of unquestionable research practices, which were researching epidemic proportions. Danielle Finelli conducted a systematic survey in 2009 and found that at least 72% of researchers were willing to somehow distort their research results. On top of that, research was also replete with untenable calculation mistakes and other errors. An article in Nature rightly called it, quote, a tragedy of errors. All of this translated into a problem of replicability of scientific findings. To put it simply, this means that the results of scientific experiments were not stable. When several researchers performed the same experiment, they came to different findings. For example, in economics research, replication failed about 50% of the time. In cancer research, about 60% of the time. And in biomedical research, no less than 85% of the time. The quality of research was so atrocious that the world-renowned statistician, John Unitas, published an article bluntly entitled, quote, Why Most Published Publish Research Findings Are False. Ironically, the studies that assessed the quality of research also came to diverging conclusions. This is perhaps the best evidence of how fundamental the problem is. In recent decades, academics have attempted to improve the quality of research through a number of initiatives. They question the pressure on researchers to publish urge researchers to make their data publicly available, push for more transparency around financial interests, and more. Overall, these measures don't seem to have had much effect. 
In 2021, 50-0% of surveyed academics anonymously admitted that they sometimes presented their findings in a biased way. Half is already a problem, but according to Finelli, it almost certainly represents a substantial underestimation. This is because a significant percentage of the researchers, even if surveyed anonymously, will not admit to engaging in questionable research practices. The measures taken to improve the quality of scientific research, however well-intentioned, failed to address the problem. The replication crisis does not simply indicate a lack of seriousness and scrupulousness in research. It first and foremost points to a fundamental epistemical crisis, a crisis of the way in which science is conducted. Our interpretation of objectivity is wrong, excessively based on the idea that numbers are the preferred approach to facts. If we look at the scientific fields with the worst replicability outcomes, it becomes clear that the measurability of phenomena plays a significant role. In chemistry and physics, for example, it wasn't that bad. However, in psychology and medicine, the situation is wretched. In those fields, researchers assess extremely complex and dynamic phenomena, the physical and psychological functioning of human beings. Such objects are in essence only measurable to a very limited extent as they cannot be, re they cannot be reduced to unidimensional characteristics. And yet, all too often, we see desperate attempts to mold them into data. In both medicine and psychology, measurement is usually done on the basis of tests that result in numerical scores. These figures give the impression of being objective. However, this needs some perspective. Studies into so-called, quote, cross-method agreement start from a question that is simple, that is as simple as it is interesting. If you measure the same object using different measurement methods, to what extent will the results coincide? If the measurement methods are accurate, the results should be virtually identical. However, this is not the case, not even close. In psychology, for example, the correlation between the results obtained by different measurement methods rarely exceed 0.45. This, of course, is an abstract number, which is why I like to give you a concrete example. Give you a concrete example. Imagine you are building a house and a carpenter comes to take measurements for eight windows. He uses three different tools on each window, a folding rule, a tape measure, and a laser measure. If the carpenter's measurements are as inadequate as the psychologist, he would report the following results. With the folding rule, the carpenter concludes that window one is 180 centimeters wide with the tape measure. The same window is 130 centimeters wide, and with the laser measure, it is 60 centimeters wide. It is the same scenario with the second window. The folding rule shows that the window two is 100 centimeters wide. The tape measure shows that it is 200 centimeters wide, and the laser measure shows that it is 150 centimeters wide. The correlation among all sets of the three measurements is 0.45. So I got a question for you. Would you hire this carpenter? This is about the best as you can expect when psychologists use three different measuring instruments. This doesn't mean that all psychological measurements are meaningless, but the idea that they are, quote, objective needs to be put into perspective. So 
let me pause for a second. We have an interesting inflection point that we're at right now between science and ideology. And I think we're getting confused that everything in life has to be measured and proven by science or therefore it is untrue. And our very, very strong beliefs behind that as a society is putting us at risk with anyone that has a set of credentials and some sort of numbers or measurements to describe whatever they are trying, whatever they are trying to prove. We look at graphs, we look at charts, we look at numbers. We're told by someone with 900 degrees that this is it, and we do not question it. This is the problem that we're in right now. This is the problem that I believe has occurred in the past two years specifically. During the coronavirus crisis, the public became aware, perhaps for the first time, of the relativity of medical measurements as we witnessed the manifest problems with the PCR test. It quickly became clear that the test can be administered in different ways, that it produces widely variable results, that the results can also be interpreted in different ways, and so on. Joanne Goth once said, quote, measuring a thing is a crude act which cannot be applied in any other way than extremely imperfectly to living bodies, close quote. By attempting to measure the unmeasurable, measurement becomes a form of pseudo-objectivity. Instead of bringing the researcher closer to his research object, the measurement procedure leads him further away. It hides the examined object behind a screen of numbers. Low validity tests and data collection methods are not only problematic per se, they also prevent a researcher from attempting to understand his object in a direction, maybe less sophisticated looking, but often more appropriate way, just by using means of words, for example. This is the real drama of fields like medicine and psychology. They have abandoned the classic research, such as through case studies conducted by experienced clinicians, and replaced it with research that might look scientific, but often is not. Metrical data might seem like a more sophisticated and objective way of describing the research object, but it often conveys less than skillful description by means of words. This led, in part, to the other problems that surfaced in the scientific crisis, the ubiquitous errors, sloppiness, and biased conclusions, which we talked about earlier. Anyone who tries to squeeze the unmeasurable into numbers will sense that his research has little real value and will be less motivated and lack a sense of duty to deliver accurate work. The lack of quality in scientific research raises a few pressing questions, including about the blind peer review system, which is used in all scientific journals and is considered the ultimate seal of approval for scientific legitimacy. Peer review requires that a study be read and critically evaluated by two or three independent experts in the field before publication. These experts are supposed to be, quote, blind. They don't know who conducted the study, but in reality, they usually do know the authors because they know the other researchers working in their field. Hence, they can usually guess who conducted the research. For this reason, a fair assessment by an expert requires not only that he is willing and able to free up sufficient time and energy far from given in the current academic climate. Moreover, it requires that he is capable of identifying his personal prejudices with regard to the research and its authors and put them aside. In other words, 
Peer review stands or falls on the ethical and moral quality of the expert. That is his subjective human characteristics. And just like that, we come full circle. Both great science, the science that maintains an open mind and pursues reason, and small science, the science that degenerates into ideology, eventually re-encounter what they originally had pushed out of view, man as a subjective and ethical being. The first kind of science does so in a positive way by recognizing the importance of that dimension and anchoring it in its theories. It started as a courageous young, a courageous young science by looking outwards to the material world, registering phenomena and establishing logical connections between them. It assumed, and rightly to a degree, that this was the way to sovereign knowledge. In great science, the human being, in its psychic, symbolic, moral, and ethical dimension, disappeared into the background. But that didn't last long. It was discovered that the observer, in his subjective qualities, has an essential influence on the, on the objects being observed. The theories in which those insights have been anchored, such as quantum mechanics and complex dynamic systems theory, have to be considered among the greatest achievements man's has ever produced. To the extent that science has degenerated into ideology, belief, and dogma, small science, it is also confirmed that the human being in its subjective dimension is the central point of focus. In this case, however, science does so in a negative way by testifying to this with its own failure. It increasingly ignored the register of subjective experience, eventually considering it to be a kind of insignificant quasi-unreal byproduct of material biochemical processes in the brain, for example. But that didn't make the subjective dimension cease to exist. It proliferated. It, it proliferated, took on grotesque proportions, and manifested itself as a torrent of errors, sloppiness, questionable research practices, and outright fraud. Ultimately, human subjectivity also reclaimed its throne in small science as well. As I will discuss a little bit later, the most striking thing of all is that in general, researchers themselves hardly realize that there is something wrong with their methodology. They generally take their scientific fiction for reality, confusing their numbers with the facts of which they are distorted echo. The same applies to a large part of the population, blindly trusting this science ideology, the scientific ideology with no other ideological hiding place given the fall of religion. Numbers and graphs presented in the mass media by someone with credentials are considered de facto realities by many people. It is at this level that Hannah Arendt situates the ideal subject of the totalitarian state, the subject that no longer knows the difference between pseudoscientific fiction and reality. Never before were there so many such people as in the beginning of the 21st century, never before were the societal conditions so prone to totalitarianism. I got, I got a runny nose. Science and ideology are mixing. And we're becoming very confused as to what's true and not true. When we see numbers, when we see graphs, when we see someone with credentials, when we see something in the mass media, we declare it to be true. But what we really need to do is question it. 
It may be true, but it equally may not be true. Questioning, thinking for ourselves, daring to think like Galileo did is so important in our society. And it doesn't matter what conclusion you make. That's not the point. We can disagree on everything, but it is my duty, and I believe it to be your duty, to ask questions, to ask hard questions, to make people give those difficult answers, to get to the truth, and no matter what that is. I don't have a preconceived notion that something is untrue. That's not what I am saying. I am saying we need to question everything for a healthy debate to occur, and that will result in what's best for the mass population. We can't just take things as fact because there's a subjective component to everything because as humans, we cannot be objective. And so that's why we need to question things and we need to think for ourselves. And thinking for ourselves is a gift. It's a freedom. It's something we shouldn't take lightly. And it again, it doesn't matter the conclusion you come to but there could be a difference between science and truth. And that's where we need to entertain the idea of thinking for ourselves and asking questions. Otherwise we fall into dangerous territory as a society. I want to get back to science and truth. Now just bear with me on this. All right. Totalitarianism is the belief that human intellect can be the guiding principle in life and society. It aims to create a utopian artificial society led by technocrats or experts who based on their technical knowledge will ensure that the machine of society runs flawlessly. In this view, the individual is completely subordinated to the collective, reduced to being a cog in the machine of society. The ideal of a technocratic society was inherent to the enlightenment tradition especially in its positivist branch. Positivist thinkers like Henry de Saint-Simon and Auguste Comte expressed their fanatical belief in a humanistic technocratic society in which scientists and technocrats could take the place of popes and priests. Not God, but human reason should be glorified. This is the way to a utopian society without war or conflict, a realm of freedom. Nazism, and even more so, Stalinism, are the most ambitious historical attempts to put totalitarian ideology into practice. They would realize paradise, and to this end, everything was considered justified. Exclusion, stigmatization, and ultimately industrial examination of every population group that did not fit within the ideal image. In both historical examples, the new utopian society had to be created through the ruthless application of a rock-solid logic. However, it would be a capital mistake to identify the phenomenon of totalitarianism only in totalitarian regimes. This is an ever-present totalitarian undercurrent that consists of a fanatical attempt to steer and control life in far-reaching ways on the basis of technical scientific knowledge. Technocratic thinking always walks on two legs. On the one hand, it appeals to people by in, uh, intimidate or in, intimidate to copying, <laughs> intimating a positive image of an artificial paradise with which it claims to be delivered from all adversity and suffering. 
On the other hand, it imposes itself based on anxiety as a necessity to solve problems. With every, quote, object of anxiety that has emerged in our society in recent decades, terrorism, the climate problem, the coronavirus, this process has leapt forward. The threat of terrorism induces the necessity of a surveillance apparatus, and our privacy is now seen as an irresponsible luxury. To control climate problems, we need to move to lab-printed meat, electric cars, and an online society. To protect ourselves from COVID-19, we have to replace our natural immunity with mRNA vaccine-induced artificial immunity. The fourth industrial revolution in which man is expected to physically merge with technology, the transhumanist ideal, is increasingly seen as an unavoidable necessity. The entire society has to change into an internet of bodies in which the human body is digitally monitored, tracked, and traced by a technocratic government. This is the only way we will be able to master the problems of the future. There is no alternative. Anyone who refuses to go along with a technological solution is naive and, quote, unscientific. Totalitarianism and technocracy, technocracy like to present themselves as the pinnacle of rationality and science. The technocratic paradise will make the population happy. You will own nothing and you will be happy and healthy, or at least offer the greatest chance of achieving this. With, so, uh, with sensors, every biochemical change can be registered and reported. Anyone showing signs of illness can be immediately examined and receive adequate treatment. In order to achieve this in an efficient way, everything has to be permanently and monotonously exposed to the artificial light of monitoring and government control. The fact that the human being is like a flower that only blooms when it can enjoy the shade of privacy once in a while is of minor importance in the technocratic worldview. Anyone who refuses to go along with the system lacks civic sense, considers oneself more important than the collective. Your health is no longer your personal business because some diseases are contagious. However, within an objectifying biological reduction perspective, it has been clear for decades that too much government control is harmful to health in itself. To use the example of a viral infection, control leads to stress, and stress in its turn leads to a greatly reduced physical resistance in viral infections, up to 80% more mortality. Acting on the basis of a biological reduction analysis is effectively a recipe for failure, even on a purely physical level. One cannot understand the course of a viral infection on the basis of the me uh, mechanistic processes seen through the small ring light of a microscope, the whole psychological, sociological, and economic context plays an essential role. Hegel already knew that. The truth is the whole. This is exactly what 20th century science has primarily shown us in an astonishing way. All things small and all things large are connected. Everything is part of an overarching complex and dynamic system. In order to understand the course of a viral disease and more broadly health and happiness, we have to contemplate man and society and observe the principles of nature. This way, the great questions of life, life, which were relegated to the second plane by mechanistic ideology, are brought to the fore again. Who are we as desiring beings? How do we relate to other people, to our bodies, to pleasure, to nature, to death? What is our place in nature? There will never be a definitive answer to these questions. Each person 
has to reformulate the answers to these questions in every new situation, and they can never be definitively determined in a purely rational way. The end point of science is not reached with perfectly rational understanding and control of reality. Instead, it lies in the final acceptance that there are limits to human rationality, that knowledge does not belong to man, but has to be situated in the wider system of which man forms a part. Super meta concept. Now, this is where things get super important and pertains to today. Man, I really got a runny nose, but I feel good. I feel gooch. Herewith, we have arrived at an interesting field of tension. On the one hand, you can see the development of science as a steady growth of rational knowledge as an ever-increasing multitude of phenomena show us which laws they obey. But on the other hand, you can also see the course of science as a process that leads to an irrational core in things, to something that eludes human understanding. And this something is not just a negligibly minor aspect of all things observed, it is the very essence of life. It's at this very level that we can discern that as a rationalization of the world continues, human beings also increasingly feel that the essence of life is eluding them and that they are more and more often confronted with experiences of meaninglessness, anxiety, psychological discomfort, and frustration. It is to be expected that the series of crises in which we find ourselves will make the inconsistencies in mechanistic ideology and the failure of associated pseudo-rational remedies increasingly apparent, and a certain group of people will see more and more clearly what the founders of science already saw. The essence of things is not rationally knowable, and reality cannot be reduced to mechanistic frameworks. When realizing this, we can finally start to look for the essence of life where it truly can be found, in that which always escapes rationalization and mechanization, in that which disappears from a conversation when you digitalize it, in the difference between a mother's womb and an artificial plastic womb in the difference between the heat of an electric heater and that of a wood-burning stove, and so on. Get your New York pizza. Better than deep dish all day, baby. The journey of science does not end in superior knowledge, but in a kind of Socratic modesty. A human who has traveled this journey far enough knows better. He just knows that all rational knowledge is relative and remains alien to the essence of the object he is trying to understand. At the end of this journey awaits an encounter with something that cannot be grasped with logic and rationality. The great minds of science have testified to such encounter in many different ways. Albert Einstein liked to talk about the elusive mystery that he found everywhere in the universe and about the wonderful structure of reality. Niels Bohr understood that poetry has more grip on all things than real, on all things real than logic. And Max Planck said that all matter is grounded in a conscious and intelligent mind that holds the fate of the world and every human being in its almighty hand. Quote, as a man who has devoted his whole life to the most clear-headed science, to the study of matter, I can tell you as a result of my research about the atoms this much. There is no matter as such. All matter originates and exists only by virtue of a force which brings the particles of an atom to vibration and holds this most minute solar system of the atom together. 
we must assume behind this force the existence of a conscious and intelligent mind. This mind is the matrix of all matter. Both religion and science require a belief in God. For believers, God is in the beginning. And for physicists, he is at the end of all considerations. To the former, he is the foundation. To the latter, the crown of edifices of every generalized worldview. That God existed before there were human beings on earth. That he holds the entire world, believers and non-believers, in his omnipotent hand for eternity. Omnipotent hand for eternity. And that he will remain enthroned on a level inaccessible to human comprehension long after the earth and everything that is on it has gone to ruins. Those who profess this faith and who inspired by it in veneration and complete confidence feel secure from the dangers of life under protection of the almighty. Only those may number themselves among the truly religious. It is the rule rather than the exception that the founders of science left the rationalistic worldview behind them. Just have a look at their more con contemplative works. Einstein, Werner Heisenberg, Erwin Schrodinger, Louis de Bruguil, Planck, Bohr, Wolfgang Pauli, Sir Arthur Eddington, Sir James Jeans. All of them had a mystical worldview because they were confronted in their research objects with an irresolvable mystery. That in no way means a minimization of the importance of rationale and logic, but it does mean that rationality is not humanity's final destination. Humanity has to step firmly onto the path of logic in order to ultimately transcend rationality. Great scientists have left the logical, factual discourse of science behind and returned in an enlightened way to the type of discourse that during the Enlightenment was initially deemed subordinate, a poetic or mystical discourse, a discourse that shows an original respect and genuine awe for the unnameable, for that which time and, gain, and, time and again eludes the human mind. Here, we see something interesting. The trajectory that science took is structurally identical to the trajectory that every human child, or at least the majority of children, takes during the transformation into a subject. I'll repeat the developmental psychological reasoning that I talked about earlier in order to put this into a broader perspective. Each, child's, each child starts life in a symbiotic resonance with the mother, which is realized through early body language. From the mirror stage, this direct resonance comes to an end. From then on, the child stubbornly tries to determine in a logical way which word refers to which object. The ultimate object it tries to get a grip on is always the desire of the other. What does the other want? Ultimately, the eagerness to understand the discourse of the other always arises from the urge to become the other's object of desire. This position, on the one hand, opens up a prospect of narcissistic pleasure and on the other hand, other hand induces an immersion in dependence and anxiety. The persistent attempts to fixate the meaning of words deprive them of their ability to induce symbiosis. To the fixation of their meaning causes the words to lose their resonating power and sounds no longer produce the connection they produce in the first months of life. This way, we see a connection between a number of elements, fanatic pursuit of logical, rational understanding, narcissism, dependence, anxiety, and social isolation. 
around the age of three and a half after the mirror stage, a second enormous revolution takes place in the subjective experience of the child. It starts to realize that words cannot have a definite meaning. He comes to realize that the human language is affected by our irresolvable lack and that there can never be a definitive certainty. The narcissistic illusion of becoming the ultimate object of the other's desire is shaken. And at first, the child is inevitably confronted with the primal fear in the narcissistic universe, being left behind as an object for disposal that does not meet the requirements of the other. At that point, the child can choose between two possible paths. On the first path, it shies away from the narcissistic fear and tries to undo the uncertainty by clinging even more stubbornly to narcissism and pseudo-rationality. This way, it inevitably slides into an increasingly isolated existence and ultimately also into more and more anxiety and unease. The second possibility is that the child discovers in that uncertainty the space to give substance to life in a creative way and to develop individuality. No longer having to be the object of the other opens up a space to be oneself and to realize one's own personality. The child no longer aspires to the enjoyment of being the subject of the other, but rather to being liked in its own individuality, individuality as a human being in its own personal way in which it makes choices and relates to other people as a human being. On this path, children become increasingly sensitive to non-factual and non-logical use of language, a use of language that shows individuality and creativity. It is precisely by practicing this use of language that the child partly rediscovers the resonating function of language and the connection with the other. The flexibility of such use of language, the fact that not every word has to be linked to one specific meaning, allows the exchange of sounds to transfer something of the logically elusive individuality of interlocutors to each other. At this point, speaking changes from a vehicle for transferring knowledge into subjective truth. On this path, the child will, in all respects, make the transition from the narcissistic position of His Majesty the Baby from the child who finds it normal that the other is always there for him to its position of a human among other humans. In this transformation, it also emancipates itself. It is no longer dependent on the parents to know what is allowed and what is not allowed, what is accepted and what is not accepted in every new situation. And it becomes aware of the broad principles that regulate human relationships and which it has to substantiate itself to a certain extent. Here as well, we can see a connection between a number of elements, ability to tolerate uncertainty, sensitivity to resonating language, humanism, individuality, sovereignty, and connection with the other. This revolution takes place in different degrees in every child, and it is never conclusive. In a sense, all of life consists of an attempt to find space for oneself in the relationship with others. Some people exert themselves intensively toward this goal, others less so, but no one escapes this essential task in life. The more man advances in this process, the more energy and creative power he will have. The ultimate potential that can be realized on this path is unclear, but the enormous influence of the psychological realm on the body, which I explained before, shows that its possibilities are extraordinary. It is on this track that the future of humanity lies and not on the mechanistic trans 
humanistic track. Science, as well as the Enlightenment Society, based thereon, have now arrived at the same crossroads, as encountered by every child when confronted with the fundamental uncertainty of its existence and of its position in relation with the other. As a society, we can shy away from anxiety and deny our uncertainty, or we can defy our narcissistic anxiety and accept the uncertainty. The first choice means that we look for the solution in an even more pseudoscientific ideology, false rationality, false certainty, and technological control. This way, we end up with even more anxiety, depression, and social isolation. And we will respond to that by trying even more stubbornly to control the uncontrollable. By the way, you should try that. Controlling the uncontrollable, it works really, really well. I've seen my dad tries to do that and other people I know try to do that. It works really, really well. Definitely control things you, you know, you can only control your actions and your thoughts, but you should definitely control someone else's actions and thoughts. That it works every time. You'll be really, really successful, I promise. Resulting in even more despair. We have shown that the logical end point of this vicious cycle is mass formation and totalitarianism. That is the radical destruction of all human creativity, individuality, diversity, and every form of social connectedness, except the bond between the individual and the state collective. We can see in all facets of society how this process is now evolving toward its limit. For the first time in history, the entire global village has been caught up in the same process of mass formation and the technologicalization and mechanization of the world has been scaled up to, sorry, mechanistic of the world has been scaled up to such an extent that the omnipresent control reaches into the core of intimacy and private life. Therefore, we are experiencing the endpoint of a cycle, the moment at which a ruling ideology is driven to its ultimate consequence, wears up with its full power for one last time, and thereby shows its powerlessness in a definitive and final way. When choosing the second path, society defies its anxiety and recognizes that uncertainty is inherent in the human condition and is necessary condition for the emergence of creativity, individuality, and human connectedness. On this path, society becomes a space in which connectedness and individual differences mutually reinforce one another, as opposed to totalitarian systems in which collectivity radically encroaches upon the individual liberty of every person and where all diversity disappears and is replaced by the monotonous state identity. The great science has preceded us on this path. It followed reason to its absolute limit, whereupon it opened up a view to a new form of knowing, a new form of connecting with the other, and to a human existence based on different principles. The way in which it arrived at this point is structurally the same as the process a young child goes through. Young science, too, starts from a belief that the object being studied can be fully understood by means of logical reasoning. Facts are logical. How could they not be? However, the further the logical analysis of the phenomenon under investigation is carried, the more clearly one sees the emergence of a core that is intrinsically illogical and inaccessible to the human mind. And just like with a child, that moment gives rise to an awareness of the relativity of all logic, as well as a heightened sensitivity to forms of language that don't aim to be logically understood, but lead to a more direct affinity to resonance and object, poetry, mysticism, etc. I started this off by stating that the emergent 
of a mechanistic view of the world and mankind was a revolution at the level of acquiring knowledge about the world. Within a religious worldview, knowledge was revealed to man by God. Therefore, the source of all knowledge lay outside man. Within the mechanistic world, this all changed. Man situated the source of knowledge within himself. He could come to knowledge, he could come to knowledge himself by observing facts and exploring their mutual connections by means of logical reasoning. But at the end of the journey, science again has to conclude that the knowledge lies outside of man. The ultimate knowledge lies outside of man. It vibrates in all things and man is able to receive it by tuning his vibrations like a string to the frequency of things. And the more man is able to set aside prejudices and beliefs, the more purely he will vibrate with the things around him and receive new knowledge. This is one possible interpretation of Rene Thom's thesis that great scientists do not necessarily have an exceptional logical thinking capacity, but rather an extraordinary ability to empathize with the things they study. Science is only one of the ways that leads this empathy. Learning a craft also leads to this ability. The starting point is a logically co coherent knowledge of the object to be manufactured and of the artisanal procedure to do so. And as you learn to apply that knowledge in a practical way, you develop a feeling with the tools and the materials which transcends any logical knowledge. This is precisely what constitutes the essence of a craftsman, a feeling, his affinity with the knowledge of his craft. His craftsmanships can only be acquired through prolonged and disciplined practice. This is the reason you can't become a craftsman merely by accumulating theoretical knowledge. Learning an art is also an excellent example. At first, you learn a logical, coherent set of rules and after years of practice, you acquire an affinity that transcends these rules. What's more, the rules ultimately become a ballast and have to be thrown overboard. In Japan, there is a proverb that says that one must protect the rules of an art only long enough to be able to break them. Masaki Atsumi, 34th Grand Master of Tokugur School of Ninjutsu, said that the techniques of his martial art must be learned to be ultimately forgotten. Letting go of the techniques after they have been practiced and they have been trained and cultivated the body is more difficult than learning them, but it is crucial. Anyone who still needs to think about techniques on the battlefield will die. The same grandmaster also stated that the prolonged practice of martial arts leads to the realization that weapons have a will of their own and that you should never enslave them. Each sword has its own character, wants to move in a certain way only if you can feel where it wants to go, will it bring you what you expect it to do? The ability to empathize also plays a role in relation to our own body. Our bodies are in essence foreign to ourselves. It responds to all kinds of stimuli, food, other people, all kinds of situations, and they do so autonomously without our knowledge or volition. We can learn to feel our body throughout our lives, for example, through certain movement-based arts or meditation by attentively observing the facts of all kinds of factors, nutrition, exercise, etc., on our body, possibly by repeatedly putting our physical experiences into words during psychoanalytic therapy. Whoever listens to his body and learns to understand its language holds the key to health. The feeling with one's own body is more important than any medicine and also more important than any objective 
rational knowledge of, for instance, healthy food. In the same way, man has also come to know himself as a psychological being, as a confluence of subjective experiences, thoughts, feelings, especially as they arise in relations with others. The ability to sense one's own experience and to put it into words and to express it in relation to another is what constitutes the core of our existence as human beings. We exist as human beings when we can give something of our individuality to another through full speech, a kind of speaking in which something of the human being we are vibrates and resonates. It is through the art of full speech, which is the art learned, for example, in psychoanalytic therapy, that we are able to realize a real connection with others and the world around us without thereby losing ourselves. It is also through this art that we as human beings and more broadly as a culture and society can relate differently to death. Within a mechanistic and biological reductionistic view of man, suffering, decay, and death can only be meaningless. They cannot be seen as something that has something to say and teach us as human beings. This is perhaps the biggest problem with the great mechanistic narrative. The ultimate master of the sublunary, death, has not been given an acceptable part in it. And he doesn't like that. Banned from the story, he terrifies us and creates frantic responses to every threat, whether terrorism or viruses, that end up being more damaging than the problem itself. It is not so much through the belief in a new great narrative that our culture will be able to give death a new place, but by cultivating the art of integral speaking and by engendering contact with the object, the connection with the other and the world, the resonance with the wider whole removes the narrow constraints of the ego, literally. To the degree that we can connect with what is outside of ourselves, we are able to transcend our own boundaries, our own world of experience gets expanded to existence that extends endlessly in time and space. Through resonance and the greater plane, we participate in the timelessness of the universe like a, like a reed rustling in the internal air of life. At the heart of things, there is something that can be definitively cap. Wait, sorry. Almost done. At the heart of things, there is something that never can be definitively captured in the categories of logic and therefore has to be re reworded time and again. Each attempt to put it into words can be only ephemeral. Ephemeral. I'm missing a lot of words here. Each new encounter brings forth new words, words directly born from contact with the object. The truth is always new, said Max Jacob. The encounter with the object produces truth, an ever-renewing way of speaking, the core characteristic of which is not so much that it is logically correct, but that resonates freshly and sincerely with what it is about. Poetry, sometimes nonsensical from the logical point of view, can carry a lot more truth than a discourse built up strictly from science truth has become an acronistic concept it sounds old-fashioned in the courage of truth the french philosopher michael foucault makes an interesting distinction between rhetoric and truth a person who uses rhetoric tries to arouse in another ideas and beliefs that he does not share himself for someone who adheres to speaking the truth the reverse is true he sincerely tries to convey an idea or experience that lives within himself to the other through his speaking 
he try through his speaking, he tries to make something he feels in himself resonate in another. In recent centuries, and especially in recent decades, the public sphere has been increasingly filled with rhetoric. We were already used to such rhetoric from politicians. No one expected them to even try to fulfill their election promises during their term of office. In the long run, the population simply accepted it. A politician's election discourse only serves to convince, and in fact, the same goes for commercials. Only an idiot believes that they paint an accurate picture of the product being advertised. Moreover, during the coronavirus crisis, we learn that it is not really different for those who present themselves as scientists. What they say today is guaranteed to be retracted tomorrow. The real volt face and revolution that society has to face is to shake off rhetoric and resolutely turn to truth as a guiding principle. For Colt distinguished four forms of truth-telling, prophecy, wisdom, techni, and periza, speaking boldly. Each of the four has to do with the ability to resonate with an object and to make that resonance resound in sincere speaking and to transfer it to others. Prophecy is a predictive power that does not come from logical understanding, but as the great French mathematician and philosopher of science, Henri Poincaré said, from the ability to sense the story that grips reality. Wisdom is the ability to keep silent and allow the other to hear his own words. The techne is the ability to speak technically correctly, to produce a logical factual discourse that adequately reflects the structure of the object to which it refers. And finally, the parisa refers to the courage to publicly express words that break through the fallacious course discourse of society. The reappraisal of the phenomenon of truth-telling will be the indicator per excellence of the progress of the revolution, which is necessary to overcome the tendency toward totalitarianism inherent in the Enlightenment tradition. Finally, we can ask ourselves, isn't it dangerous to give up ration rationality as an ideal? This question prompts me to a small reflection, which only due to the seriousness of its subject is not benign. 35,000 children die of hunger every day. Why doesn't this upset the masses while a virus does? In our rational view of humanity, why don't we save these young hungering lives at a much lower cost than those threatened by the coronavirus without the risk of losing civil liberties and without the dangers associated with experimental medical interventions? No one panics for a child that is dying on the other side of the world. This is the inconvenient truth. The rationality and humanism of the Enlightenment are in many ways a masquerade and a fig leaf. Strip man of this masquerade and you look into the eyes of a rationality, look behind the fig leaf of rationality, and you will find the ancient human vices. A rational worldview does not prevent us from giving free reign to irrational thinking. On the contrary, it prevents us from recognizing irrationality. And as such, Irrationality takes on grotesque proportions. On the other hand, one who knows the limits of his intellect usually becomes less arrogant and more humane, more capable of allowing the other to be different. When his intellect stops shouting, he is able to hear the things of life murmur their own story. He realizes that he is also entitled to his own story. The awareness that no logic Logic is absolute is the prerequisite for mental freedom. 
The gap in the logic literally opens up a space for our own style and for the desire to create. Quote, I became healthy while creating. This is how Galileo described his medicine against the ailment that is life. Perhaps it might also work against viruses. In any case, this remedy ensures that we can honor the right to free speech and the right to self-determination without feeling threatened by one another. It encompasses the potential to mitigate anxiety, discomfort, frustration, and aggression without the need for an enemy. This is the point at which we no longer need to lose ourselves in the crowd to experience meaning and connectedness. This is the point where the winter of totalitarianism gives way to a new spring of life. Kaboom! Baby, rub on your baby. Call me Mr. Nee. Call me Mr. That's some pretty deep stuff. In all honesty, my nose is running like crazy. I'm trying not to sniffle in the mic. So I'll just leave you guys to think with that. I hope that some of that made sense and was entertaining and that the thing to take away is we don't need to take away freedom of speech and freedom of expression for this virtue signaling thing. Everyone has the right to create. Everyone's subjective. There's no objective truth about everything. Every person's individual thoughts and their own individual interpretations of things need to be taken into consideration. If you disagree with someone, you disagree with someone. It's okay. I'm friends with a, most people disagree with me, but we're still friends. You have the right to disagree just as you have the right to agree. Enough forcing things down people's throat and let's live as a free society and not lose that. Because once you lose that, it's hard to get back. I like my freedom. And if you like yours, let's work together in keeping it. We're on the same team. We're all on the same team.